0: Our scripture reading comes from Daniel chapter 4, um, verses 1 through 3, And, and these are actually the words written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself, so hear these words. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What would it take to humble the most powerful person on the planet? Or or, or to drive the most arrogant to his knees. What would it take to humble you? I mean, seriously, think about it. Like, what, what could possibly compel King Nebuchadnezzar, of all people? Right? The one that we've been talking about, learning about together. What could compel him to write a letter like this one to his people? I mean, you heard right. Like, King, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, writes at least part of our story for this morning, the villain so far, right? Uh, the, the wicked, the terrible, the one who has enslaved and oppressed God's people, that guy writes part of the Bible. Well, how did that happen? I mean, just, just like imagine what, what it could possibly take to write a letter like this to, to his people. It, it happens in Daniel chapter four. If you have a Bible, if you want to follow along, go ahead and, and turn there. But just, like, imagine with me, like, let's just say you are a governor in some province in the Babylonian Empire. And you open your mail one day. I don't really know how mail worked back then, but, you know, whatever. Uh, And you pull out this letter, and it's, like, it's from the emperor. Like, your boss, right? The one. I mean, it's it's kind of a big deal, right? And it begins, of all things... Like like this, let me read the start of the letter again in verse one. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I mean, at this point, right, you're reading this letter, you've got to like jaw dropped sort of like, what? What? And we talked about this last week, that that Babylon is fundamentally pluralistic. They have to be as they they conquer more and more people to to elevate one God over another, especially the Jewish God of all, right? That, to elevate, I mean, to call him the most high? I mean, come on, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, what happened here? I mean, think about, again, what it would be like to, to receive a letter like this. Now, you and I, we've, we've already seen glimpses of God's work in Nebuchadnezzar's life as we've, as we've studied Daniel, right? We've seen it over the last couple weeks. And he's, he's sort of taking baby steps towards God, I guess, maybe. I mean, think back. And so like a couple weeks ago, he had this dream and, you know, nobody could figure out what the dream was. And he didn't want to tell him what the dream was. And so Daniel comes in and Daniel knows what the dream is and tells him what it means. And, and, and at the end of that, Nebuchadnezzar is, is kind of does one of these to God. He's like, you know, like a little little head nod, a little, okay, all right, all right. Um, but then he goes out and he builds a golden image, right, and tells everybody in his kingdom, you got to worship this thing, or I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace, right? So something didn't quite stick the first time around. But then, so last week, like three guys are thrown into the fiery furnace right in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and they're okay. Like he sees that, They they come out and they they, they talk. I mean, like imagine experiencing such a thing. He saw all that. And again, at the end of that story, he's sort of like, you know, high five to the Almighty. Uh, But nothing changes. Nothing. Decades pass. Decades. I mean, Daniel's not done, but Nebuchadnezzar almost is. This is our last story with King Nebuchadnezzar. We've got more of Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, think about this. This guy reigned for 43 years in Babylon. We have three stories centered upon him, right? The first dream, the golden statue in the fiery furnace, and another dream, right? That's it. So he's kind of at his end, 43 years. So we started with Daniel in his teenage years, and Nebuchadnezzar is with Daniel all the way into his 50s, right? But this story... We don't know exactly when it takes place in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but it's, it seems clearly somewhere towards the end. Things are wrapping up for King Neb. And so his, his letter continues. again, you're reading it. verse four. He says, "I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace." Life couldn't have been better. I think,, ugh, things were so good. Like I'd conquered everybody. Like there's nobody left. Right? And, and power and, and prosperity and, and all those those kinds of, of things, you know, it's time to just sit back and soak it in, right? Live it up. You're Nebuchadnezzar, right? Things are good. And not, not only has he conquered, like, the entire known world. I mean, just, right, think about that. Um, I mean, just even the things he did in Babylon, like historically, like we know he renovated at least like a dozen temples, renovated or restored them. He, he completed the great wall around his capital city. He built a new palace with the, the famous hanging gardens, right? One of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world that probably looked something like, I mean, imagine that that long ago, this kind of construction. This is sort of the setting in which we find King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Nebuchadnezzar at this point, I mean, he's crushed it as a dictator, right? I mean, he like historians will, will tell us that there have maybe been like max 12 people 10 to 12 people in the history of planet Earth who've known the kind of power and success and prosperity that Nebuchadnezzar knew. I mean, like just like get your mind around this for a second. Like if he knows it exists, he rules over it. Like if he can imagine it, it, it belongs to him. Like there, there is nothing outside of his ma- imagination that he is not in control over. He has all of it, unprecedented success. But even he can be shaken. In, in fact, I mean, think, think about what happens. The letter, the letter continues here. He says basically, comfortable though I was, I saw a dream that made me afraid. I mean, good grief. Just take an Ambien already, right? I mean, this guy and his dreams. Like, who, there's three stories and two of them are about his stupid dreams. Like, like how, why? Like, you know, and he's freaking out again and, you know, it's, it's like this terrible moment for him. It's, but like, what could terrify the most comfortable person on the planet with the largest army, with the most amount of safety? What could, what could rattle him tree. It's not actually the tree that scares him. It's the axe sitting next to it. And so he calls in all of his advisors. It's kind of the same drill as last time, although decades have passed, right? And they don't they don't know what to do, right? He tells them the dream this time, so that part's a little bit different, but they, you know, they don't, Apparently they don't know. I don't really believe them. I think it's a pretty obvious dream. I don't think they just, they just didn't want to tell him. Um, That's my guess. Uh, And and so Daniel then finally comes in, right? And Daniel, again, he's in his maybe 40s or 50s at this point. He he comes in to to the scene and, and, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar remembers the first dream. That was in his second year of his reign. This is a long time ago, but he remembers it. You know that, you know he does, right? It may have been a while or we don't know exactly all the details of the relationship in between that time. but, But Nebuchadnezzar knows something's unique about Daniel. In fact, he says three times in this letter that there's something different about Daniel in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwells, essentially. Like, there's, like he's, not a normal, he's not a normal guy, right? There's something special about Daniel. And so Daniel walks in, and, you know, I just kind of picture him. He's like, oh, thank God you're here. Daniel, I had another dream I are not going to believe this one. It was awful. I don't, I don't understand it. Would you just, you know, and Daniel's like, oh, there, there. You know, king, yes, it's rough being you, kind of holding his hand or whatever, patting him on the cheek. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's, you know, this weird, weird scene, right? And he says, Daniel, I had this, this dream about a tree. It, it was a tree in, in the very center of the world, And it was big and and mighty and beautiful and and it just kept growing and growing and growing and it got bigger and bigger and taller and stronger until it finally, I mean, it reached the heavens, Daniel. And everyone on the entire planet, everywhere, could see it. And everyone was fed by its branches and found shade and comfort under it. It was beautiful and bountiful and sustained everything. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, right? I like trees. They're kind of cool, right? But Daniel, Daniel, then someone, someone came down from heaven and gave the command, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him, that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men." Now, I'm no dream expert, but it doesn't seem good for Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, that's why I'm like, come on, really? Even Daniel's like, you don't know what this means? (laughs) Like, like Neb, I mean, it's pretty obvious. I mean, that's why I'm convinced the the advisors, you know, the other guys, they were like, you tell him. No, you tell him. Let's just wait for Daniel to come in. Let him tell him, (laughs) right? That Nobody wants to tell him. It's obvious. This is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar, He even for him. And even, I mean, so much so, I mean, it's, this is hard to believe, like Daniel, the unshakable Daniel is sh- shooken up over this dream. He's quaking in his boots because he knows what's coming. I mean, so much so, I mean, it's just kind of strange. Like Nebuchadnezzar actually tries to comfort Daniel. He's like, Daniel, it can't be that bad. Come on, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's all, it's all right. And, and, and Daniel, I mean, God love him, but he is faithful and loyal to his wicked king to the very end. And Daniel's like, oh, oh, king. King, if only this dream was about somebody else. If, if, only, if only this dream was about your enemies and not you, but you, you, O oh, king. O oh, king, you are the tree. And sooner or later, no matter how big and bright and strong and beautiful you are, God will cut you down. You're going to lose your mind, he tells him like your own like faculties, your ability to, to think and reason. You're going to become like, like an animal. You're going to graze like a beast. You're going to become like the beast your pride has made you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Until you know who's boss, Nebuchadnezzar. But but in but in the meantime, king. I mean, Daniel pleads with him. He's like, king, but but repent, right? Turn away from your sins. He says, literally, like break off your sins before God breaks you off. He says, practice righteousness, show mercy to the, to the to the oppressed, and perhaps like just maybe, just maybe, Nebuchadnezzar, the divine lumberjack, maybe he'll wait. Maybe he'll give you just a little bit more time. Daniel pleads with him. But Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I don't, I don't really understand it, but he's sort of like, eh, that's it? That's the dream? Shoot. Daniel, have, you, have we met? Have you seen me? Have you seen my armies? Like, do you know who I am? Not even God. Because, I mean, it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar walks out of this. But does he forget? Does he just not care? Is he, is he just that arrogant? Come on. You're God, please. I'll be fine. I control the universe. And essentially, he was fine. For about 12 months, he's fine. Things couldn't have been better. In fact, the story, the story picks up as as fast forwards, it's a year later, and Nebuchadnezzar, he's on top of his palace. And I mean, again, just imagine what this is like. The things that Daniel saw, and that Nebuchadnezzar there on top of the palace, he's surveying all of it. All that he has. His palace, his kingdom, the walls. I mean, I almost picture like, you know, his army is over here. His bank is over here. He's got everything before him and it's all laid out. I mean, seriously, never before in history has anyone, any one person been this successful. And there it all is for King Nebuchadnezzar. the camera, I picture everything like a movie. The camera zooms out and we see it all. We see what, what he's done, every accomplishment he's made. You know, the music in the background begins to, to swell. I think if this was our Broadway musical, this would be Nebuchadnezzar's big number. I'm convinced. Um, in fact, archaeologists uh, recently found uh, an ancient recording of the exact music that was played during this, this exact moment. Seriously. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean that. In fact, we've, we've got a little clip for you right here. Uh, go ahead and play it. I, I huh? Huh? Familiar? Little well, Megan Trainor? Wait for it, it gets better. If I was you, I'd wanna be me too. You know it, right? Come on, you know this song. I hate, I hate, I hate that I like that song, honestly. Have you listened? It's awful, right? But you know Nebuchadnezzar, he's like, that's my jam, people, right? This is his his song and this this is his moment. So I picture him like on top of his palace. I don't know why. He's wearing a bathrobe in my mind. Um, He's got his crown on. Uh, He's at kind of the edge. There's a a ledge. This is how I see it, okay? Um, He's got one bourbon in one hand, cigar in the other, right? And in this moment, he declares, I don't even know who's listening, but he cries out, is not this the great Babylon which I have built? By my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of of my majesty. So essentially, he says the, you know, the same words that you and I think whenever we review our accomplishments, but wouldn't actually say, right, because we know better. Um, But we'll we'll get to that in a second. So he, he makes this loud declaration of the glory that is Nebuchadnezzar. And I can't help but hear another song take over and fill the background. Let's listen. Go tell that long tongue liar. Uh-huh. Go and tell that Johnny Cash. Lied, Come on. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. backbiter. Tell him the god's, gods gonna cut him down. Him Come down. on, right? Yeah, you know this one. It gets better, it gets better, down. right here, right here. This is for Nebuchadnezzar. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. What's gonna happen? or later, to put you down. Lady, gotta you down. Mm. I got to get the soundtrack, right? <laughs> I mean, you hear those songs, both of them, it's like, man, were they written for Nebuchadnezzar, right? Or maybe just for humanity more generally, right? But we'll, we'll get there. So imagine, imagine this scene. All that's just happened. he declares loudly, boldly how awesome he is. And he is awesome. Nobody before him. And yet truthfully in this moment, like the words, I don't even think they're out of his mouth and you almost hear God laugh, don't you? Or at least humming along with a little Johnny Cash, right? You know God loves him some Johnny Cash. But you, you, know, it's, you know it's bad because like even God cuts in at this moment. like He's like, you know, Neb, no, let me just stop you right here. Right, if God ever speaks audibly to confront you, it's it's not a good sign, right? The kingdom, He says, has departed from you. It's lost. It's gone. It's 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 out, right? And all those terrible things that you dreamed about, those Nebuchadnezzar, those are going to happen to you. You're gonna you're gonna lose your mind. You're gonna your, your hair, He says, is going to look like a, a like the feathers of, a, of an eagle, and your your fingernails are going to be like these talons, and you're gonna you're gonna graze in the fields like an ox. You're going to lose your dignity, your self-respect, everything around you. It is all gone until, Nebuchadnezzar, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I wonder what this story is about, right? In case anybody's missed it uh, at this point. So the first thing we learn here that pride, a thing that lives and often flourishes in every one of us, pride dehumanize, deceives, dehumanizes, and destroys. Pride deceives, dehumanizes, and destroys. Pride is the first sin. It's the original one. It's what gets it all started. It's the sin behind all the other sins. Pride pride, is the belief that you're in control, that I'm in control of my life, that I, I decide what I need that I don't need God that or his rules or his help, that I can be happy without him. Like pride is, is the desire to be God without actually being like God, you know, being just tyrannical and self-centered. It's all those, those things. And the prouder the prouder you are, the less you can see. I mean, so much so that I can actually end up blaming God for the bad things in my life, but all, taking loads of credit for all the good things. I'm sure none of us can relate to that. Like something bad happens like, how could God do this? Something good happens like, right? Look at me. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, he, he refers to this as cosmic plagiarism, that we take credit for what God has done. And so like just imagine if you, you know, students, you turn in a paper with your name on it that you wrote that some other kid ends up getting credit for. Or, 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 you know, you turn in your reports at work, and somebody else takes, takes the, the benefit and, and gets, gets the, the results for themselves, on, on, for them at work. Or, or, like, what if, like, you know, an aunt comes up to you and is like, you know, actually the real reason your kids turned out okay is because I was in their life. Like, right? You're going to punch that person. But that's exactly what we do with God, isn't it? Pride looks around and says, look at my house. I've arrived. Look how, look how hard I've worked. Look how good I am at my job. Man, I, w- I was smart enough to get in the right schools and, and worked hard. I made only a few mistakes. And look at my kids. Man, I've been such a good parent. And look, I mean, just think of the genetic material, right? I mean, we, we give all this, this res- respect and this, this credibility to ourselves. Like, I mean, just like, what if I'd been born in a different century? Then what? Or a different country? What if I've been born to different parents or given different opportunities? What if I've been born with a different color of skin or a different language spoken or, or worshiping a different God, right? I had zero control over any of those things. And yet I look around and think, man, I did that. I earned all of it. I mean, God helped, I guess. But, you know, between you and me, come on, right? And it's hauntingly, terrifyingly clear in this story the prouder you are, the less human you become. I mean, obviously, it's it's an extreme example with Nebuchadnezzar, right? He starts living like an animal, like like the beast he's become. But this is this is what pride does. Pride is dehumanizing. When we try to make ourselves into something more, we actually become something less because we're, we're not meant to be more than God. We're not meant to be in control of our, own, of our own lives. To be human is to be created. It's to be dependent. It's to be subject to, to one's creator. And pride rejects all that. Rejecting the very foundation of what it means to be human. I think it's why it's so appalling to us when we see people living an arrogant life, right? It's disgusting. It's because we, we know it's, we're not meant to live like that. There's something subhuman or unhuman about living that way. In fact, it's even, it's even listed, I don't know if you know this, this is, this is a fun fact, it's listed as one of the things God hates most. Did you know this in Proverbs? Here's what it says, that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Number one on the list, number one, haughty eyes. Oof. And I know, right? I know, I know. Pride, and pride is sort of like the bad breath of the soul, because you notice it on everybody else, and it is disgusting, right? But for yourself, I mean, <sighs> I don't know, it's all right. <laughs> Doing okay. I mean, that's how proud we are. And In fact, I, I would venture a guess that for some of us, we are so proud that this entire time we think, man. I hope my husband's listening or my wife or my kids or my parents or my friend or I wish I wish my boss could hear like no like this this is about you it's about me pride is at the core of of who we are and our our broken sinful selves this isn't about anyone else in fact C.S. Lewis I love this he writes if you think you are not conceited it means you are very conceited indeed (laughs) so if you think this is about somebody else if you think you can check this one off the list, that this is, this is a problem you don't have, but those people have, or that person has, if that's, if that's where it is for you, like if you don't see where pride is beginning to take root in your life, it means it's already taken over. Like it's, it's, already, it's already taken control of, of who you are. Where are those places for you? Where, where are the spots in your life where you either reject God because you just don't need him, which is pride, right? Or, or where you, you just take credit for whatever he's done in your life. What are those places for you, for me? And let me, it's like a word of advice. Like don't wait for what happens next in the story. Humble yourself now. Because this, this story gets worse before it gets better. Verse, verse 33 Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. It all happens, just as God said it would. Every, every detail of it comes to pass for, for seven periods of time, it says. We don't really know what those were, what that means. Seven somethings. Seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years. We don't know, but it was long enough. And it was deeply humiliating that God humbles the most powerful person on the planet, everything gone, even his own dignity. That the divine lumberjack takes out his freshly sharpened axe and just starts chopping. I mean, how do you feel about that? Is that okay? Can God do that? I mean, I guess we're probably okay because we didn't know Nebuchadnezzar. He lived way back then. He was like a total jerk. And so, like, he got what was coming to him. But, but like, like if, you don't hear, if you hear that story, you're not thinking, but if God could do that to Nebuchadnezzar's pride what's he going to do to mine? Because if, if you're not asking that question, look around. The axe is already at the foot of the tree, and you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. And so here's the second thing that we just can't miss. This is a hard one. I don't think the other one's easy, I guess, but because you see God's severity in this story, don't you? I mean, God is not messing around when it comes to our our pride. Um, He is severe, but merciful. Don't miss that from this story. I don't want to miss it. God is severe, but merciful. Because like a surgeon, he cuts, and it hurts. And sometimes he has to cut deeper, and in more places, but he'll do anything to get the tumor out. Pride is a cancer that has to be removed. It's going to kill us otherwise. Like, we, we, can't, we can't live with, with it in us. It's going to destroy us. Like, there's no, there's no way around it. We, we will die if God doesn't do something about the pride within us. And so out of love for us, out of severe mercy to us, he cuts. And I'm not saying that everything that, bad that happens is God with his acts, okay? Of course not. We live in a broken world, and sometimes terrible things happen, and yet it would be very proud indeed, wouldn't it, not to at least ask, God, are you trying to teach me something here? God, is there something that, like, I'm missing, that I need, I need to learn? Are you, are you acting right now, God, in my life like a good father, disciplining his child? God, do I need to be humbled? And if so, would you humble me? Have you ever asked God to do that? Next, next trial you face, big or small, no matter, no matter what it is, don't just like quickly dismiss it as an inconvenience, right? Or as a string of bad luck or whatever. It might actually be God. Out of love, trying to squash just a little bit more of your pride. One chop at a time, right? Listen, every one of us here I'm convinced every one of us is just one blank, and you can fill in the blank with whatever. We're just one blank away from humiliation, aren't we? From from utter disaster. Um, What would it take to level you? And will you welcome God's severe mercy when it comes? Will you recognize it? Will you thank him for it? You know what? I got a better idea. Hear me out. What if? What if instead of taking the beastly route of Old King Neb, what if we just learn humility now? Right? I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? Like, why? Let's not let's let's not go that path, and let's just let's just learn something now. We know easier said than done, right? But God tells us exactly what He wants three times. I read all three of them. You can't miss it in the story. Like, we know what God wants from Nebuchadnezzar. He says it. All this mess happens until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, until you know who's boss, until you recognize who's in control, Who, who, who your life is actually subject to, who's actually in charge of the universe that you think, that I think I tend to run. Nebuchadnezzar, I think he learned it. Like, listen to what he continues to write. Verse 34, he says, at the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Let's, like, just stop there. For, like, that's so interesting, isn't it? The acknowledgement of God is the return of reason. That, that true reason, not, that's not what we usually think, right? True reason actually starts from a position of humble faith. And he goes on, he says, and I, and I bless the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none, none, nobody, could, nobody could stop him. None could stay his hand or say to him, you've made a mistake. What have you done, right? Nobody could say that. He learned it. I mean, if only he had just started there in the first place, right? Think of all the pain that could have been spared. All, all the suffering and heartache in his life and the lives of people around him. And yet, in these words, we find the great antidote to our pride. I mean, it's not that, it's not that profound, honestly. It's just simply a recognition and delight in someone bigger than yourself, right? Right? That's what, that's, what Dan, that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw here in this, this story in Daniel that, that there's a God who rules the universe, not me. There's a, there's a God who's good and gracious to all his people. There's no room for pride with a God like this. And so we can thank him for it, right? Instead of taking credit for those things, actually thank him for those things. I mean, that everything good you have is because of God. All of it? Yes, you're responsible to make good decisions and, you know, work hard and all those things, and and yet even those abilities come from him ultimately. Are you thankful to him? And also trust him for it? Like, just to daily remind yourself, for me to remind myself that he's in control, not me, that he keeps me safe, not me, that he decides what's good for me and best and right for me, not me. And to be able to say, even in the hard things, God... Is in control, and he's gracious. Even when it's hardest, will you trust him and obey him for it? I, mean, I love that. And this, like ne- Daniel's like first response to Nebuchadnezzar is, "Dude, you got to repent, practice righteousness, get your get your act together. Like, do what God wants you to do. Show mercy to the oppressed. Let God be the boss of your life. He's gonna do a better job than you would anyway." I mean, the antidote to pride isn't just trying to be, like, super humble. I mean, that's tend- that tends to be where we go, right? Like, gosh, I just got be, to gotta be humble, 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 right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think uh, lowly thoughts about myself and all that. But that's just, that's just more pride, right? Isn't it? I mean, really, because you're just self-obsessed. You're still obsessed with yourself, and that's, just, that's more pride. It looks a little bit different, but it's still pride. That's not the antidote. The antidote to pride is being captured by someone who's bigger than you. Someone that you can delight in and trust and who who rules the universe, that you can submit to even when it hurts, even if you don't want to, that, that standing before a God this big, we can we can do what he says, even though we feel small. That like, like a child, we, we get to run into our father's arms. We can delight in something who is bigger than ourselves. Because it it actually kind of works out for, for Nebuchadnezzar. It was okay. I mean, kind of he got his reasons back, got his kingdom back. At least to some extent, not really sure how or or what that looked like for him, but it happened. More importantly, verse 37, it says, Now I, still writing this letter, right? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Even what he did to me, right, was right and just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. And and you can tell he's been humbled, right? Because like, only a humbled person would write a letter like this to the people in his life, right? Especially as a ruler like this to the people in his empire. He had been deeply humbled. And God's severe mercy actually leads him to what looks like repentance. Maybe even like conversion. Like people, this... This is, like, this, is his, this is his letter of testimony to the world of what God has done, that God pursued even him, the person that the last two weeks together we had completely written off, right? Am I right? The wicked, evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, and God has chased him down, and finally Nebuchadnezzar responds. And it seems as if Nebuchadnezzar enters the people of God. That's our family, folks. That he and Daniel became brothers. That this wicked tyrant like, you and I, we might be actually, actually able to meet him one day. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? I'd love that. Wouldn't you love that? I mean, I don't know how all that works and, you know, how we even recognize each other. Like, maybe he's wearing the bathrobe and a <laughs> bourbon and cigar or whatever. Um, but I'd love to, like, go over and just be like, ask him, like, what was it like? And how, what was it like to be that powerful, first of all, and then to be lowered that, that deeply? But, you know, one question I don't think I would have to ask him was it worth it? Like, are you, are you okay that God did this to you, that he humiliated you? I don't, I don't think that question would be necessary to you. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories from the, uh, the Narnia series. I love those books. And I think maybe my favorite book is The Horse and His Boy. And I think maybe my favorite scene uh, is, is this one scene I'm gonna tell you about. And okay, this is fantasy. I realize some of you are like, ugh, talking animals and mythical creatures. Bear with me, I know. I think they're awesome, but you don't have to. Um, but, but like in this series, you know, Aslan, he's like, he's the great lion. He's this, this figure of, of who Jesus is, right? The divine king, the God of, of, of everything, um, but with lion flesh on, right, in the story. And in, in this particular book, there's this horse named Hwin, and I love Hwin. And, and the, the climactic scene of this story, the horse and the lion meet together. Like, just, like, imagine that, okay, for a second, like, a horse and a lion hanging out. In fact, I actually Googled an image, like, Google images, like, horse and lion. Um, It wasn't the images I was looking for, okay? Uh, Let me just say, none of those will make an appearance. Like, it doesn't end well for the horse, okay? Uh, This is a terrible, terrible, terrifying situation, not unlike Nebuchadnezzar meeting his God, right? Terrifying, And yet, as as Lewis describes this this scene, Huen, the the horse, I love her response. He he writes, Then Huen, though shaking all over, terrified, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else might be the greatest line in that entire series of books. And that, that in my opinion, that, that's the message of Nebuchadnezzar's life. I mean, there's a ton that we learn, right? We see that pride dehumanizes and destroys us. We, we, we see that God's mercy in our lives often may be terribly, terribly severe and yet still merciful. And we see that, yes, the better, the better path is to choose to submit ourselves to this rightful king even now. But if you only take one thing from this message— only, only one thing from our time this morning. I, I hope that it's this. This is, this is what has gripped me in this story. And it's what I'm convinced Nebuchadnezzar, if he could stand here in front of us, would say, that it is better to be humbled by God than exalted by anyone else. That it is, it is better to be humiliated by God than exalted by anyone else. I'd rather be devoured by him than fed by anything or anyone. People, let, let him humble you. Let, it, let him devour you, if that's what it takes. For the one that we serve, our God, was humbled for our sake, wasn't he? Let I me mean, think about that. The only one who has any right to pride, truly, like the one who made everything, the righteous and holy, the one who's existed from eternity past, that has no beginning and no end, that's bigger and stronger and mightier, whose kingdom lasts forever, like him, right? Every reason for pride, and yet he humbles himself so much so that he, he enters into our story that the same God who confronts Nebuchadnezzar, becomes a baby, born in Bethlehem, and that, that he comes not not with an axe, but instead he comes to bear all of our pride upon himself, to take all of our sin and selfishness, all of our arrogance and insecurity, every bit of, of pain and heartache that you and I could ever experience, to take it upon himself, and he was truly cut down on the cross for our sake so that in due time he could lift us up, crucified for our forgiveness, risen again for our life and for our wholeness. And if, that, if that's who our God is, if if that's our, our King, if that's if that's Jesus, friends, I'd rather I'd rather be humbled by him than exalted by anyone else. Let's pray. Gracious Father, loving Savior. God, I want to ask you to do what none of us here want you to do, including me. God, would you humble us? God, would you expose those areas of pride that continue to take root and entangle us? Would you help us to see them? And God, whatever it takes... God, would you, would you take out your axe and start chopping? But do it, do it with grace. God, do it dripping with mercy and love for us. Would you, would you take the pride that lives and thrives so quickly in my heart and in so many? God, would you take it out and continue to take it out through our Savior Jesus? And God, we are so thankful that you have made a way for us that, that this, this humiliation is not is not without a glorious and triumphant end because of Jesus. That truly he was the one who was cut down for our sake and that in him we know, not, not only is, is humility not that scary, right, because he was humbled less and he made it. Um, and that we're with him. We're sons and daughters with him. And so not only is humility less, less scary for us, but God, we also know that in due time you will raise us up. Even as you rose your son, from the ground. So Lord Jesus, we trust you, we worship you, we give everything to you, and God, we proclaim, um, even when it's hard to believe, even when it's most painful, help us to say it and to believe it, that it is better to be humbled by you than exalted by anyone else.